Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Young Education Professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talks focuses on Minnesota's changing demographics and the impact on education. Our speakers include Ruth Hamburg, engagement specialist for Minnesota Compass, on the topic of who is Minnesota, and Ka Ying Yang, policy director at the Coalition for Asian American Leaders, on who are we talking about, the importance of disaggregating data. This event was recorded before a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on September 19, 2016. Our MC for the evening is Javier Mario. Hi, thank you so much. Um, so as Javier said, I'm Ruth Hamburg with Minnesota Compass. We have a website. Um, this will be maybe one presentation where if you choose to take out your phone and browse to our website, I won't be offended at all. So feel free to take out your phone and browse our site or tweet to us, tweet about us at MN Compass. So as Javier shared, we are a data project. We provide community indicators to let you know what's happening in Minnesota. Um, I've been with Compass for four years, and to be honest, I still have days when data leaves me a little cold. Um, I, I think about the people that I know in my community, I think about their stories and their experiences, and I wonder how a number can possibly try to capture who they are and what they're dealing with. Um, how far can quantitative information take us? But then I, um, I go to bed, I wake up the next day, and I remember that um, data really can be a source for insight and a tool if we use it properly and understand its context. So data, um, at its core, is an abstraction. It's a lens of looking at reality, but it's not the reality itself. Um, it has a context and even the way that the questions are framed come from um, a context of a community or of a way of understanding the world. Um, but when we understand data and where it's come from and what trade-offs were made in collecting and disseminating it, that's when it can really be a tool for us to help guide us in the direction we want to go to build a stronger community, a stronger education sector, and to understand um, who is Minnesota. So we'll dig into it, and then Kaying is going to give us some insights into the broader story of what these numbers are hinting at, but maybe not covering completely. So let's start with maybe the biggest abstraction of all. How many people live in Minnesota? So by the number, Minnesota is 5.5 million people. We rank 21st among states just above Wisconsin. So if you're riding that high from the Vikings game, you know, keep it going. <laughs> um, and we're all interested in education here tonight, so let's get right into talking about the kids and youth in our state. We have 1.3 million kids and youth, and just over half live in the Twin Cities. Um, 
if we look at these neighborhood profiles that Javier so kindly promoted, um, this is a map showing percent of households that have some kids in them. So not the number of kids, but just what households have a kid or more. And we can see that there's quite a range from Minneapolis and St. Paul. It ranges from 6% of households in the downtowns. Not so surprising, perhaps. Um, just think for a minute how high you think this number goes. Um, it actually goes up to close to one in two households for neighborhoods um, like no near North Minneapolis, so the southern half of North Minneapolis, and several neighborhoods in St. Paul, half of households have kids in them. So if we just think about what that means for those neighborhoods in terms of their needs, in terms of the parents' experience, what they're looking for, in terms of resources for education, the story is quite different looking across the city. So who are these kids? This is a graph showing the Twin Cities seven county region. So not just Hennepin and Ramsey, but the um, broader circle, including some suburbs. And we're looking at it by age we can, and by race. So a very broad split of white people, people of color. And we can see immediately quite a big difference as we look down the um, age spectrum at the youngest end, kind of that digital Generation Z group, um, nearly four in 10 people are people of color. That's 38%. In my generation, the millennials, it's one in three. And when we look at our elders, our senior citizens, it's closer to 5%, 9%. And this is something that we do see across the state, but Minneapolis, St. Paul is leading the change. Um, we, we do see some, um, some interesting trends in terms of population growth, however. In the state as a whole, the fastest growing population is the aging population. It's that age 65 plus group. So we still will have implications of voting power, um, availability for volunteering, things like that from our um, older adult population. So I um, have just shown you some some of those broad categories of white people, people of color. I mentioned earlier that there's value in looking at the context. So we're gonna take a step back and look at some deep context for the Census Bureau. Uh, the Census is one of our primary ways of understanding and reporting and communicating about race. And even sources like the Department of Education um, that provide their own data sets are likely looking to the census or having their data compared with the census. So it's important to understand um, just what the census means when we say like people of color and white people. So these are the five broad, broad, broad race categories that the census provides. They were set by the Office of Management and Budget in 1997 and have been used since 2000. Um, we have white, black or African American, American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, a Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. And you can see the groups that go into those. Uh, there's one that might be missing. Can anyone? What? Hispanic, so Hispanic Latino. Doesn't show up here in the race um, area. And I recommend if you need some, some reading, light reading, just find a census form and read it and see what questions they ask. Hispanic and Latino is, a separate question from race at the moment. So they ask, what's your race? And are you Latino? 
and then um, put those together. So when we talk about white, we're talking about white, not Hispanic. And when we talk about people of color in the data sets that you come across, it's often all the other categories, including Hispanic, Latino. Um, let's go farther back. This is one of the very first census forms. Um, and I just want to show what they were asking at that time, um, kind of to understand how the census is um, it's a way of understanding our world, and it's a reflection of our society. It's sort of a social artifact. Um, the census definition of race recognizes that it's a social construct, and we can very much see that it's a part of our history, and through the years has been showing a different understanding of race in our culture and society. It's certainly not something that has been fixed um, in time since we began recording as a nation. So in 1790, the categories you could pick from, or the categories that were picked for you, so you couldn't pick your own race. Um, someone would look at you and decide which category you fit into, and those categories were free white males, free white females, other free people, and slaves. Um, and that is very much refl a reflection of that time. Over the years, they added a category of Indians living on tribal land, Chinese, um, quadroon and octoroon, which measure how much you are a black person. Um, Mexican, in 1960, they let you pick your own race and check the box yourself. In 1970, they added other Hispanic and Latino groups in addition to Mexican. And then in 2000, you had the option to identify as two or more races. So thinking about all of that, Let's go back to the present day and do a quick quiz for all education people here, um, all about quizzes. So what share of Minneapolis-St. Paul residents are people of color, now that you have an even greater understanding of what people of color means according to this data source? Um, raise your hand if you think it's 5%. And raise your hand if you think it's 9%. Raise your hand, we got a couple, if you think it's 26%. So one in four, and raise your hand if you think it's 33%, one in three. Um, so it's 26%. So one in four people are people of color. Uh, we've seen a big increase um, in the number of, or the share of people of color in the MSP region over time. So this is showing from 1960 to, uh, to 2010, it was 24%. And then we project in 2020, 29%. And then those of you who raised your hand for 33%, just give it a few years, maybe like 15 years. In 2030, that will be the number. So in 2030, one in three people in the Twin Cities will be a person of color, according to our current way of measuring race. Uh, so let's get back to the youth and check in on how we're seeing demographic change by race, ethnicity, among the Twin Cities youth population. So this graph moves from 1990 to around 2011. Um, this, data, this data set has been discontinued actually, um, but it still lets us understand where the trend was going. So in 1990, the largest number of youth were identified as youth who are black and their parents were born in the US. Um, so maybe they've been here for many generations. 
now we're seeing that the highest number by population is among Hispanic youth. And we've seen in 2000 that orange line is when that option to check two or more boxes appeared. That's the multiracial youth population, and that's just been growing. Um, and we're seeing growth among um, youth who are black and whose parents are immigrants as well. So seeing some impact of immigration on what our youth population looks like. So let's take a look at the multiracial youth number, that quick growing population. 8% of kids and youth in the Twin Cities identify as two or more races. And the most common ways that this looks are for youth to identify as white and black. So about half, about a quarter identified as white and Asian, and 9% identified as white and American Indian. And in this data set, um, we weren't able to tabulate how the Hispanic youth fit into that. So um, that's why you won't see that appear. But it, if it were possible to show it, to know it, it might be a bit higher. Another way we can understand identity, ethnicity, culture, is to look at the languages that are spoken in students' homes. Um, this is a data set from the Department of Education. And I've broken it out by Minneapolis and St. Paul. So you can see some differences in what language are, languages are most commonly spoken between those two cities. Um, in St. Paul, Karen is spoken um, in more students' homes than in Minneapolis. And Hmong is the second most common language after English. In Minneapolis, Spanish is the next most common, followed by Somali, and then Hmong, and then Amharic. So we've looked at some of our um, our youth information on languages spoken at home, and you likely recognize that those languages are, tend to be spoken by our more recent immigrant populations. So Minnesota is um, seeing a, an increase in immigrant population, and the Twin Cities as well. Um, and it's a greater increase by rate than in the US. So from 1990 to 2014, the US immigrant population as a share of the total population doubled. In Minnesota, it almost tripled. And in MSP, it went up four times. So quite a difference in what we're seeing. And again, um, Minneapolis, St. Paul is leading the way, although we do see um, immigrants living throughout the state. Um, so these have some implications as we think about um, I mean, needs in the classroom, um, just what it means to be a student in the, in the United States, but especially in the Twin Cities. And we saw in that previous slide that the immigrant population is hailing from many different regions, many different places. So when it comes down to it, at the moment, nearly one in 10 Minnesotans are immigrants. And this represents um, an increase that we haven't seen in quite a while. The last time we had a share this high of population was in 1940. And that was um, following a big wave um, and that wave is the one in which my great-grandparents came to Minnesota. The, the immigrants at that time were largely Swedish, Norwegian, German. Um, and prior to that, of course, there were um, many people from native nations who lived in the state. And there was quite a demographic shift um, looking at that history. 
So if we think about the countries that today's immigrants are coming from, you don't see Sweden or Norway on the list. It's um, actually topped by, and this is Minnesota, by Mexico, um, followed by India, followed by Laos. And you can see the rest of these. I want to highlight um, just again kind of both the diversity of our immigrant population as well as the contrast of our immigrant population with the country as a whole. So we have um, several, of, several countries that are in Asia and then several more in Africa. And that is something that distinguishes us from the US as a whole. In the US, um, there tend to be more immigrants who are from Spanish-speaking countries. But in US, or in Minnesota, um, we see a greater share who are from um, Africa or from Asia, from countries in those areas. So you might recognize also from this list that um, there are some countries that are common departure points for refugees when they come to the United States. And in fact, we see, um, or we see actually that Minnesota is a, is a top destination, not necessarily for when refugees first come to the country, but we are the top destination to move to once you're here. So um, that is a, a large part of our story as a, as a state of immigrants. So one reason that um, people may come here or may hear about Minnesota is our great quality of life. And so I'll show just a couple of our rankings. These are overall rankings for the entire population of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Um, this first one is share of adults who are working. We rank first. Um, sixth, number six for median income. Second for the poverty rate, a low poverty rate. Second for health insurance coverage. And fifth, for the percent of youngest adults who have a bachelor's degree or higher. So we're doing um, very well when we look at some of these numbers. But I know that Achieve Minneapolis is um, digging deep into issues like the achievement gap and just how the experience of being a Minnesotan ranges across communities. And so you probably are thinking, Mm, okay, that's the number overall, but how does it look for different communities? So I'm about to lay a graph on you that is a pretty heavy one, but I think you can handle it. Um, it's, it's also got tiny print, sorry. Alex, I'll walk through it. Um, so this graph breaks out the data on one of those measures on poverty rate by um, age and by cultural community. So um, I'll explain a bit about this. Well, you take it in. This graph comes from a recent report issued by the Minnesota State Demographic Center. It's a marvelous resource. There should be a tweet about it now um, on Twitter if you look for it. It's called the Economic Chart Book, and I highly recommend taking a look. They broke the data out by 17 cultural groups. Um, they really dug deeply. Um, and so from this data, we can see the number and percent of kids under 18 living in poverty. The orange bars represent the number of kids in Minnesota by cultural group, and the blue dots represent the percentage. So one thing we can see immediately is that there are a lot of white kids living in poverty. That's that high, high, high orange bar on the right, but only 8% of the total population of white children and youth live under the poverty line. That's a low percentage because there are so many white kids in the state. Um, 
I just want to point out a couple of interesting points here, just in the spirit of using data as a launching pad for our questions rather than one answer that we just let be the answer. Let's explore a bit. Um, so a, a key point that I see on the graph, if my, okay, there it goes. Um, so if we look at um, two of these bars, I'll point out this one for African-American. That represents um, people who've been here for generations. So it doesn't include like Somali immigrants or other recent immigrants. So among African-American, um, as they're called on this graph, youth, we see a high number of kids in poverty. It's around 30,000 and also a high percentage, 39%. So four in 10 youth um, in the state. If we compare that to the um, Somali youth, we see a low, relatively low number, um, around 10,000, but a high percentage, 62% or two in three. So there's quite a different experience for, um, for our kids, even though if we looked at an aggregate chart on poverty by race, they would all be collected under the term of black or African-American. Um, so it's, even looking at the data, it's, it's so important to take it a step farther to ask, how do these categories split out? What might we see um, if we look a step deeper? And if you don't see that, the data that answers your question, I encourage you to keep exploring um, and look for it and ask those questions to get to the information that you need. Um, so I'm looking at it by another split as well. That was um, looking by cultural group. I wanted to give a quick look by geographic area. So this will show poverty rates within one mile of two Minneapolis schools. Um, those of you who know all the schools in Minneapolis may recognize that there's not actually a school, I don't think, in that location. I actually picked out two schools from my childhood. I grew up on the north side in Camden, and on the um, left is the school my brother attended, Hamilton, which is now closed, and on the right is Pillsbury, which is still going strong, as far as I know. <laughs> so I looked these up just to show, um, so these are not too far from each other, but the school's neighborhoods are, are quite different. Um, if we look at the poverty rates within them, and this came from our, um, our custom profiles tool, which you can find on our website and draw your own neighborhood. So around Pillsbury, the poverty rate among kids age five to 11 is 9% and around 12% um, for kids age 12 to 17. Can you click the next, the next one? And if we look at Hamilton School over in North Minneapolis, it's 32% and 35%. So we're seeing one in 10 compared to one in three. And this is, these are both in Minneapolis. These are schools um, where just my brother attended and where I attended. And so thinking about um, just the experiences of the students outside the classroom, um, what is their neighborhood like? If they're being taking a bus, what is their home neighborhood like? Um, what does that look like? It's a question that um, we can get at using data like these. Um, so why does it matter to look at all of this? I, uh, we have a ton of data on our website to help understand the impact of income levels or the, the correlation between income and um, kind of quality of life. I just have one representative chart here as we're wrapping up. Um, we can see 
by this chart that the poverty rate tends to be lower for people who have a bachelor's degree or higher, and it's, it's quite a bit lower. It's 4% for Minnesotans who have a BA, 11% for Minnesotans who don't have a BA. And we see all sorts of other correlations here. Um, for example, the rate of diabetes diagnoses is very clearly correlated with your level of education, your level of income. So how can we respond to this demographic change? How can we respond to this data? Um, I have a couple suggestions. Uh, one, we can design education for today's students and tomorrow's students. We can recognize their needs, um, the challenges that they might be encountering, as well as the unique skills and gifts and experiences and stories that they have to share. I wonder if the educational ecosystem of Minnesota just disappeared tonight, what type of system would we build tomorrow based on who we see in our classrooms and um, who we expect to see as our state continues to shift in our demographics? We can consider the context. Where are our students from um, experientially? What are they experiencing in terms of access to healthcare, access to um, supports, families, um, in terms of whether the parents have a job, what the poverty rate is, how much time they have um, to bring their kids to extracurriculars, as well as geographically. What are these trends that we see across our metro as we look at quality of life? And we can keep asking questions. I can ask questions of the data. Um, so what does that graph include? What question was asked when they got that survey result? And ask questions of the data sources. What trade-offs were made? Did you have enough budget to do the research you wanted to do? Um, what, what kind of implicit biases were present when you did that research? Um, what categories were available for people to pick from? You can ask your students. What are their stories and experiences? How interesting would it be if students were here responding to the data? We can ask questions of the education sector um, and address just how to move forward, understanding who we are today, and then ask questions of yourself. Um, how do these data strike you? Are you surprised? Are you, um, are you not surprised? Like, did you know all of this already? And are there ways that you can share and encounter and take this in and also use it to challenge yourself? So um, we also hope you'll ask us questions at Compass. This is my contact information and the information of our project. Don't hesitate to be in touch if you have a data question or any other question related to what I've shared tonight. And thank you very much. Um, so our, um, our second speaker to, uh, tonight is Kaiyin Yang. Um, she is with the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. This is an organization that is a cross-sector, uh, cross-ethnic, cross-generational network of 500 Asian Minnesotan leaders harnessing collective power to advance equity, improve lives in Minnesota's um, Asian community. And she will speak to um, uh, di disaggregating data. Let's hear it for Kaying.
Thank you, Javier. Thank you for having me here today. I'm a little bit nervous because in my culture, I was taught to be afraid of teachers. So when I was going to do this talk on Ed Talks, I couldn't sleep for days. And so I'm going to use my notes, if that's okay with all of you. Actually, how many of you are teachers in here? Okay, so not too many. What about the others? Are you administrators? School board. Oh, that's scary too. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that there's not that many teachers. I was uh, sleepless for no reason. Um, I want to start this conversation by talking a little bit about who I am. And uh, I'm going to hone in on just Asian American population, right? Because we often talk about who are Minnesotans, but we never talk about the specific community. So today I'm going to talk about that. And I'm going to talk about why data desegregation is so important. So my name is Gang Ying Yang, but I, wanna, I want you to say it the correct way, right? Because I feel like as immigrants and refugees, we come to this country and we butcher our own name to make it convenient for you, right? <laughs> so today I'm going to ask you to say it the way I say it in Hmong, or actually um, Hmong is a tonal language. We have eight tones. Any of you speak Mandarin in the audience? No one. Oh, Mandarin. Mandarin has, eight, has only four tones, so sorry, big country, but... <laughs> Hmong people have no country, but we have eight tones, so that's the asset that I bring here, right? Um, so it's a tonal language, so in Hmong, my, my name is spelled K-A-A-B, so how would you pronounce that in English? Kab, right? And then my middle name is Ying, Y-E-E-B, so it's Kab Yib, right? And my last name is spelled Y-A-A-J, so Kab Yib Yaj, right? But that's not true, the last... The last letter is a tone marker, so it, B is the highest tone. So can you say gang, gang, sing it, it's a tonal language. That's what music teachers always do, right? Gang ying, yang, gang ying yang. Okay, I feel less nervous now. Isn't that beautiful? And now when I introduce myself, I say, oh, my name is Ka Ying Yang. <laughs> Horrible, right? But this is cultural competency, right? I often yell at other Hmong millennials, why do you have to butcher your name? You're not Du Che Zong. Nobody knows what Du Che Zong is. It's Dun Che Xiong, right? Or Gan Ying Yang, or Song Wang. See how beautiful that is? These are the assets that we bring to the state of Minnesota, but because we're so eager to adapt and to acculturate, that we quickly forget them to make it convenient for all of you and for all of us, right? I know not every community does that, but I know that in the Hmong community, we often do that because we want to create harmony. Well, harmony this, harmony that, right? Then we, at the end of the day, we're the ones that's not living in harmony, right? So, my name is Gai Ying Yang, and I came to this country in 1976 to Columbus, Ohio. I was six years old, seven years old. I came with my mom and dad, and my mom and dad, like all other Hmong families, brought three other um, cousin brothers with them because they didn't have any parents at that time. So the only way to come to this country was to be attached to a family unit. So my, my dad said they were his brothers and we brought them together. Otherwise, they would be orphaned and left behind in refugee camps in Thailand and or deported back to Laos during, uh, uh, after the war. My father... Um, was a soldier for the CIA. How many of you have been watching Obama visiting Laos? You better raise your hand, yeah? Okay, there's a huge connection to Minnesota. 
So the majority of Hmong people in Minnesota are from Laos. And the reason we're here is because people like my father, who at that time was a teenager, was recruited by the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, not the Culinary, Culinary Institute of, of what, Cuisine or something. Um, so he actually only had a fifth grade education, which is very common in many Hmong people from that generation in Laos, mainly because Hmong people lived in the remote areas of Laos, right? So access to education was very difficult. Um, but he was lucky enough to be sent into the city to go to uh, school, and then eventually recruited, like all the men in our community, by the CIA to fight as foot soldiers for the Americans who was carrying out a secret war in Laos. Eventually, because of his um, bravery, he became, um, he earned a rank of lieutenant colonel. And he went and married my mother, who is a village girl um, uh, in the mountains of Laos. My mother has never held a pencil or pen or a piece of paper until she came to Columbus, Ohio in 1976. But because she was a wife of a lieutenant colonel, she had certain privileges, right? So you can imagine my family. I'm telling you my family because I know that many refugees and immigrants have the same experience, right? My father's first job was a senator, uh, was a janitor, not a senator, a janitor. <laughs> would have been in your union, probably, at a hospital. So imagine that, right? From a lieutenant colonel with bodyguards to becoming a janitor at a hospital. Even though it's a great job, the morale, of course, was, uh, was very harsh on him, right? And my mother, who was a, a lieutenant colonel's wife, although she had no education, lived in poverty, um, came to this country and became a maid at the Ramadan Inn. To this day, her bed is always made very well and the home, her apartment is very clean. So I, for a, for a young child, seven years old, I knew something was wrong. And I remember the experience of crossing the Great Mekong River to come to the refugee camps into the United States. My first two English words were yes and no. And when, we were, when I was seven, I was placed in the uh, third grade. There were, I don't think that there were any ESL or EL pro programs back then. Uh, so they put me in the appropriate age grade, I suppose. So when people ask me what was my name, I just said yes. And when they say how are you, I just said no. And I used those words for a, we a few weeks. But the only things I remember from those days was that a college student who looked Asian came and was our tutor for many, many months. But I didn't remember anyone else from that period. I remember one other little girl who pulled my hair every single day because at that time I had long hair to my butt. So those are the two clear memories I have about my experience in Columbus, Ohio when I was seven years old in the third grade, right? And so I want to uh, tell you this story so that you know who I am. And I want to tell you what Ruth was saying. The data doesn't tell you and us about the problems and the concerns and the traumas that we face. So in the classroom, I only know yes or no, and I have lots of challenges, but when I get home, I also see my parents suffering, right? And the, the loss of status, um, the loss of just self-respect, you know, and the loss of home and loss of family and heritage. So even though I was seven years old, this was very prominent in my mind. And to this day, I, I think I am traumatized by it too. So that's why I, when I talk like this, I feel like I'm going to be tearful, but I'll try not to be. 
So as teachers, I know that you know that you have to care about the child, right? And everything about the child in order for that child to be successful. And so um, I think I became an advocate mainly because I've seen my family go through this process as refugees. And in fact, when we talk about secondary migration, my parents uh, came to um, Columbus, Ohio. We were sponsored by a Catholic church. And, um, but we couldn't stay there because the Hmong family were very few and we needed to be in a community where we had the social structure and support that we needed. So we moved to Wisconsin, Manitowoc, Wisconsin to be precise. And um, so that was another very interesting experience. <laughs> um, so when we talk about data disaggregation and data, uh, Ruth and I met and we, we talked a little bit, but I wanna say that the Coalition of Asian American Leaders and Compass actually had opportunities to work together before we created Cal. And the reason we did this is because as all nonprofits experience, we don't have the funding to do our own research. So we have to collect uh, and analyze other people's research in order to make a case for us. And the reason we needed to make a case is because we often see data like this, right? How many of you have seen things like this, where you see Asian, the category of Asian, here? This is individuals below the poverty level by racial and ethnic group. So when we see the arrogant Asian here, we are not doing so badly, right, compared to all Minnesotans, about 10%. But when I see this data, I don't see myself in that data. I don't see my mom, I don't see my neighbors, I don't see this at all, right? But this is what policymakers see. This is what decision makers see. The next data here, I purposely made it small so you don't have to see the, the numbers, but I want to make a case, right? This is median household income for Asians. Look at how well they're doing. Even better than Minnesotans, right? Nearly 80,000, maybe 70,000 here, median income. Now, does that look like the data that Bruce just showed you before? No, right? So again, when we see this kind of data, we said Asian Americans have no needs, no issues, and we're left at that. But as soon as you start separating the communities, right? Here, Asians, Southeast Asians, and other Asians, right? It's still a very big category. But look at the stark difference here. Almost 50% difference, right? Median household income. So this is the reason why data disaggregation is so important to us because it doesn't tell the whole story. And for, um, oh, am I supposed to point in here? And here is uh, graduation rates. This is the scariest one of all, right? Asians are graduating just as, is it right here? Just like any other community, right? Oftentimes, I'm an advocate now, and I go to school, and I say, how are our Asian students doing? They're, oh, they're so well-behaved. They're graduating. They're valedictorians, right? Yes, maybe there are exceptions, but that's not true for everyone. So the purpose of this discussion is that usually, usually when I go to meetings and conferences or even talk to policymakers, these are the three types of charts that I see, right? And then no one ever talks about Asian Americans again because people are afraid to bring it up because well, look at that, they have no needs, right? 
Even I'm afraid to bring it up because I don't have the disaggregated data in my hand to say, look, that data is not complete. Right? So this is why at Coalition of Asian American Leaders, we are so adamant about data disaggregation. When widely accepted aggregated data hides economic insecurity experienced by ethnic and subpopulations within Minnesota's Asian population. For example, an estimated 37,000 Asian Minnesotan adults live under the poverty line, of which 29,000 are Southeast Asians. This makes me think about my mom and my dad. They're one of these 29,000 people, right? They live from day to day. In the summertime, they have gardens, and that's all they eat is the vegetables from the garden. And maybe they'll go buy chicken or pork to eat with that. That's how they're surviving. We don't have investments. We don't have 501K. Who does that? They worked at a Ramadan Inn, and they worked at a, as janitor. And they didn't work there for very long, right? So what is the retirement plan for them? I am the retirement plan, right? <laughs> when lumped together into the aggregate data of Asians, our community's disparities become hidden, okay? And this is true for Asian Americans. So how do we use data to build voice and visibility together to achieve equity? For Asian Minnesotans, ensuring that our inclusion and equity discussions means having the ability to see and understand nuanced data. And I, work, and I use the word equity because it's really equity, okay? It's not just about learning about our community, but to have equity, we need to have data desegregation. So again, when we talk about the individual, what we know about ourselves is not what data tells us, right? But since we've been working with Compass and we live in a society that's data driven, we know that it's very important to have both, right? And so we're trying to change about how we, how we do business. So who are Asian Americans? How many of you in here are Asian Americans? Can you raise your hand? I can't assume, I don't know, so. We are the fastest growing community in the state and in the country. And since 2000, our population has grown by 53% in Minnesota to, a, to about 256,000 strong, made up of 40 cultural communities. And Asian Americans comprise the state's youngest population with a median age of 29, significantly younger than the average Minnesotan age of 38. And from 2010 to 2014, Asian Americans added 26,000 people to the working age population, while 35,000 white Minnesotans went into retirement age. I don't know if that scares you or makes you happy. But as educators, I hope that we did a good job educating those folks who went into the work workforce, right? Unlike any other community in the United States, 60% of our Asian population are Southeast Asians who are refugees or descendants of refugees, like me, okay? This is unlike any other state, as I said before. And the majority of, of Asians in Minnesota are Hmong, Vietnamese, Asian Indian, Chinese, Cambodian, Korean. 60% are, are, are foreign-born, Nepali, Burmese, and Asian Indian, and 40% are native-born, 
Japanese Hmong. The Hmong community is one of the youngest here too in Minnesota. And there are 72% that are citizens, Khmer, Korean, Vietnamese, and then 28 that are not citizens. So we have a strong voting block, right? And I was just talking to Pahua about how we need to activate that voting block. Most commonly spoken Asian languages in Minnesota are Vietnamese, Hmong, Lao, Chinese, Hindi. I know Ruth talked about this a little bit, but my, my graph is prettier than hers, right? <laughs> my chart. <laughs> I'm not a data freak, that's why. <laughs> and for those of you who are educators, 49% of our Asian students are concentrated in the Twin Cities, in Hennepin suburbs, and in St. Paul Public School. And these the, are the languages spoken at home. Karen, Mandarin, Khmer, and Hmong, Vietnamese. In some school districts, Asian Americans make up 30% of the student population, yet there are no Asian cabinet level leaders. The US Department of Education asserts that Minnesota's overall on-time graduation rates for all students of color across all racial lines puts it at, directly at the bottom of all 50 states. Asian American students rank 46 out of 50 from, uh, for on-time graduation. When I looked at that, I thought, well, 80, 82% is pretty high, but when I looked at the other states, it's like 90%, right? So I didn't realize that when you compare what a stark difference that is and the 20%, right? So here, 18% do not graduate high school on time. Peep, students with limited English proficiency, there's 36%. We could not disaggregate that data, so we use that data. And then Hennepin County suburbs, 16%. And St. Paul Public Schools, 22. We use this data because we know that the large majority of Asians in St. Paul School uh, are most likely Hmong students. So we, this is how we use the data for advocacy purposes. In addition to uh, Minnesota, which holds the highest average ACT score in the nation of 23, Asian students, even at the aggregate level, hold a score of 18. So even though we're graduating our students, they're not proficient, right? And they're not going to do well in college. How many of you knew that already? Good, the school board member knew that. So I just wanted to highlight the numbers of LEP students who do not graduate from school. And we need to focus more support for ELO students, right? These numbers, there's a lot of numbers here, but I just want you to take a look at the numbers of Asians who meet or exceed third grade reading standards, right? 49% meet it. But 51% don't even meet third grade reading standards. And for LEP students, 77% don't meet third grade reading proficiency. Hennepin County, 47, and St. Paul, 73. These numbers are very high. And yet we boast that we have high graduation rates, right? And I worry about this. And if they're going to a workforce, what kind of workforce are they going into? And what is the economy of Minnesota going to look like in the next 10, 20 years, right? 
eighth grade math. It looks a little bit better, 63% of all Asians meet or exceed eighth grade math. But when we break it down, 37% do not. And look at the limited English proficiency again, 76%. Hennepin County, 28%. And St. Paul Public Schools, 57%. I don't know, it's not moving, okay. Okay. So unfortunately, neither the US or the Minnesota Department of Education require data collection beyond the aggregate label of Asian until now. We passed some bills last year. Therefore, data for specific ethnic communities is not available across the state or at major school districts. And people have said to me, that's not true. We collect it, but we don't know what to do with it. So we don't have the funding to analyze it and to, to use it publicly because it's not required, right? So even though without data desegregation, we as a community understand that for many of our children, uh, many of our children are being pushed out of schools without being college ready. Available quantitative data combined with qualitative data shows these following themes. We took it into our own hands to say we need to talk to our community, right? The families and students have challenges navigating the system. I think most of the time, our current students, they're being pushed out of the system. They are graduating high school, but graduating without having much ability to move on to community college or four-year college. The current community is our newest community in the Asian American community, right? They come from um, uh, Burma. And just this year, she, the one of the staff said they have 3,000 Karens in the St. Paul School District. Many students are invisible from the core curriculum. Asian kids are very invisible. Many of them are hungry for role models. Asian students are not included in so much the curriculum. And we want you to see our language as an asset. I just taught you how to say my name and didn't you feel good about that? Well, we want everyone to feel good about that. I was not really encouraged to honor my language. That encouragement was coming from my family members, but it wasn't coming from my schools. I believe that our young people need to see themselves in their education. Student engagement and social, iso social isolation. My worst memory is the feeling of how I couldn't articulate discrimination. I couldn't describe it. I knew sometimes things were not fair, but I didn't know why. I didn't know the context of marginalization. I felt I, didn't, I did the same as other students in high school, but got treated differently. And teacher diversity. I know there's a huge movement on teacher diversity, but we also see it in our community. At the end of the day, it helps kids almost more than anything to have somebody in front of the classroom that looks like them or understands their experiences. It's not getting special attention. It's giving recognition to the unique circumstances and cultures and responsibilities. It encourages the kid to perform better, study harder. Do you remember what I said about being Columbus and I remember the tutor? And I remember the girl who was bullying me? Those are the two memories. Those things are, are engraved in your mind forever, right? And race-based ELL placement in St. Paul Public Schools. And, and other schools too, but the, Saint Paul, the school district needs to ensure that ELL parents understand their rights. 
If I speak another language other than English, then automatically my children are coded as EL. To get them out of the, that track is challenging. Even if we refuse these services, the education system keeps testing them in EL and it's a waste of time. Remember when I said data is not desegregated? So home language is one way to, to figure out where, who the students are, right? And many of us are so proud to say we're Hmong, even though there's no box to say you're Hmong, we say we speak Hmong just so that we can be counted. But when we do that, then it labels our child and potentially he or she will become tracked into EL. And I'm not against EL, but I think that we need to think about how EL can be better and uh, quality education for those students who are there when we see how many of them are not graduating, right? So we are not surprised to hear about any of these issues, unfortunately. When we see too many US-born Asian Americans placed in EL or English, despite the fact that English is their first language, if they're born here, we only speak English to them, right? Or when there is one Asian teacher for every 70 Asian students in schools, right? When there are zero Asian Americans in cabinet level positions at school districts. All problems are clearly systemic. Would you agree with me? And we need to address these issues deeper, these deeper issues in meaningful ways and in and in part, this requires data desegregation. I understand the limitations and challenges of data desegregation due to population size, data co collection and sampling methods, and data management and systems capacity. Many people tell us that, that they can't do it. It costs too much, yeah? But we also, as an advocate, support efforts to properly fund these data desegregation work so that people and organizations have resources and capacity to conduct good implementation. So that legislators, educators, and decision makers have accurate data. But most importantly, for community members who are most affected by these data, to be able to use the information about their community for their own benefit. If these students can't even use this data to advocate for themselves, then what's the point of data, right? So Asian Americans are diverse, and we believe that both proactively understanding the challenges of our community and simultaneous, simultaneously building on our community's assets is essential to achieving equity. So that's my presentation for today. Thank you very much. So we have time for some questions from, uh, from the audience. Uh, there's a mic here up front if you want to come up here so everyone can, uh, can hear you. Um, I, uh, see, I, I, I uh, my, the, my first reaction to the data, so this last week I was asked by another labor union to help facilitate a conversation um, at their, amongst their members and leadership about, uh, on issues of racial equity. And uh, one of the, the questions I, I asked the group to discuss was um, that we knew I knew from the information they gave me that this particular union, 65% of their members would be of retirement age 
uh, in the next five years. And it is a union that is right now overwhelmingly white and becoming more diverse. And it's very clear that when, you know, that as the, the, the retirement um, uh, wave hits, that it will be much more diverse. And I asked the question, what does the union have to do differently um, to be a welcoming place for everyone? And I didn't uh, think, and I had to take a step back because in the conversation, it was um, someone challenged just this premise that we had to do anything differently. Um, that, uh, you know, we're like, why, why, does, why, do you, why do we assume that we have to do anything differently? So I guess that's my first question to you all, really, as you think about your questions and come up to the mic um, and, and to our presenters. Um, I know Compass is not, you know, you're not policymakers, you, you, uh, you, you uh, put together data, but Kain, you, you definitely have ideas. Like, um, when we say do something different, you know, do things differently for our current population and the population of the future, what are the kinds of things that we are talking about um, uh, beyond what, um, what I think, you know, some, some unexpected things perhaps that people are not necessarily thinking about? Um, I think that I don't know what you will do differently, but I know what Cal did differently. This time, instead of just starting a nonprofit and start working on issues, we also did what other people expect, didn't expect out of us. We did collection of data and an analyzing data. And we had our own set of data to say, here's why you should be doing this, right? So I think that as communities of color, we also need to um, change the way that we normally do business and really to challenge the system using the tools that the system understands, right? So uh, like I said, Every time I go into a conference or a meeting where I see the aggregate data, I now have tools to say, but when you break it down, this is what it looks like. I did not have the language for that. I didn't have the analysis for that. That's why you didn't see my presentation with a lot of data because I'm still learning about how to use data to benefit my community. And this is why I urge Ruth to say, show me how to use your data to help me, right? So even if those, yes, you can clap. <laughs> So even though they can't be doing advocacy work, she can also help empower me to do the advocacy work. You know? And so this is the ongoing conversation that we have. Um, I think the qualitative data is also very important because uh, people talking about their personal lives and challenges is more powerful than the numbers, right? And you can see, I purposely read the quotations because I wanted to give credit to those people that, that responded to us, you know? Um, even second generation Hmong people in this country who speak English fluently don't know how to navigate the educational system. And I know even white parents don't know how to navigate the system, but how come we're not working together to say, this is how and this is what we should be asking when we go to teacher-parent conference, right? So I think that we are all facing the same challenges, but because we are working in silos and say, oh, you're Hmong, so you, know, you, you have your own Hmong PTO or whatever. I think that we have to start doing that and we need to collaborate and co uh, more, right? So I think that's it. The other thing is that um, Cal is trying to do more uh, legislative policy changes as well. I think our community has gone through an evolution politically. Um, with the election of you know, more Asians, three, <laughs> more Asians, three people to the Capitol. I mean, it's empowered us to say, 
you know, we can also go to the Capitol and make some changes, right? So as Americans, we are embracing that democracy, but we need to also understand what that democratic process is like and not be so overwhelmed and intimidated by that process. So when I go to the Capitol, if I'm nervous, I hold on to another person who's a community advocate and we go together so that we're not so nervous, you know? And I hope that when you see me at the Capitol, you come and hold my hand and we can go and meet legislators too. So I think that this is the kind of stuff that I think we should do differently. And Ruth, um, what, um, if, as, a, as a data person, and you could, if you could instruct the state of Minnesota on like what I need when it comes to youth, um, the, the information you, what other information you wish would be collected for you to be able to present? Is there anything that jumps out at you in particular? Because I, the thing that jumped out at me about Kang's uh, presentation was just, you know, using language to, o to overlay on top of the, dis the, the aggregated data to try to figure out what the reality is. But that's, that feels so imprecise when, when, it's, when the information seems there to be gotten. Sure, um, that's a big question. Kind of <laughs> what would the dream scenario be? I think... Um, Ultimately, that would have to be determined in a conversation with the students and the families and the people that need the data. But as, um, as far as possible, getting cross-tabs is helpful. So looking at um, cross-tabulations of race by income, by geography, um, and breaking down into more disaggregated data where possible, considering that in um, Looking a little bit more broadly than just education data, there are um, communities that tend to be more marginalized, including in the data collection. Um, and so it's kind of an issue of equity and an issue of data, just having good data to make sure that we can invest in data sources that are useful for everybody. You had a question? Um, could you please talk about the legislative challenges that you've um, encountered, barriers, whatever, in terms of getting the state to look at disaggregated data? Um, it, definitely in the Asian community, but also in the black community, um, it's huge. And then also, do you have an opinion about the opt-out? Uh, movement and its impact on our ability to um, gather data on student achievement. Thanks a lot. Um, so what we did this last legislative session is that we worked very closely with MinCAN on a bill called the All Kids Count Act, uh, sponsored by Senator Kent. And, um, you know, Cal has been doing uh, has been promoting data disaggregation for a long time. And I, in fact, I want to credit the Asian American community nationwide for uh, uh, pushing data disaggregation because that's happening in California, it's happening in DC. The White House Initiative on Asian American Pacific Islanders have been encouraging the US Department of Education to disaggregate data. Um, so, so it just happens in Minnesota, Cal has been uh, spearheading this and Min can uh, uh, drafted a bill which we all worked on. And um, I have to say that it was the Republican Party that was actually very supportive of the data desegregation. And so we were able to get bipartisan support and that's why the bill was passed. Um, there was a lot of, I know I'm being videotaped, but there's a lot, there was a lot of pushback by the Minnesota Department of Education. 
Not that they didn't want to do to collect data, but they said it was too expensive, right? That's what I always hear. Too expensive, they didn't have the systems to collect the data. And so we were trying to make the case that you need to collect this data because that we wanted that cross-tabulation, right? So at the end, we had a um, day at the Capitol, and it was our first uh, at the Capitol, and we brought over 100 people, and Song and other people in the room were there. And we used that as our talking point and used that as a, the message to educate our legislators. And uh, soon thereafter, the bill was passed. So Minnesota, now you have, uh, you are the first in the state, um, in, well, one of the first in the state of uh, the United States to have uh, policies that say that uh, MDE must disaggregate data. Uh, they still don't have the funding to do it, so we have asked them to apply for a grant with the U.S. Department to um, get money so that they can develop the tools. Now, the other pushback was that um, you all know that every Student Succeeds Act is coming down the pipeline, and MDE is now charged with developing a state plan around accountabilities. And so the ESA also requires data desegregation, so they're waiting to see what those requirements are so that they can do it. But like I said, we wanted to ensure that the bill was passed so that it's in law. Whether they do it or not, it's in law, right? Because if you don't get the bill passed, then it's not in law and you can't push anymore, right? So, so that was one of the experiences that we had. So um, I think you all should celebrate that that bill did pass and you need to follow it, right? So yeah, thank you. Um, for the opt-out, you know, I don't know enough about opt-out, but I also feel like, um, I think traditionally opt-out was mostly parents who have uh, more privileges, right, who would opt-out. And I think now, now that, I mean, Song, who's a parent, understands this probably better than me, but now parents, uh, parents in our Asian American community are also wondering if they should opt-out from these tests. And, you know, I don't know enough to give you an answer because I'm not an educator, but I would love to have a conversation with you so that I can have a better understanding of it. Yeah. Do you have uh, more questions? Please, uh, please, please come up uh, to the microphone. Um, so uh, tell us more about the neighborhood profile and, and with regards, um, do you know information about, you know, just around specific schools. I know you, you know, you picked the, the areas you did, you said from places you grew up, but I, I just, I found that fascinating. I looked at my, my own neighborhood, um, the west side of St. Paul, um, this, this afternoon to look at, at the information, and it was, it was just striking to, to, to me um, when you look at the, the schools in the area and how well they're doing and such, and um, do you see, like, what are the correlations you draw from the data um, in that regard with, uh, with regards to our neighborhoods in the Twin Cities? Mm, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm so glad that you looked up the profiles. We, I'll just let you know what they are and how to get to them and then speak to some of those things that we see. So um, the neighborhood profiles are funded largely by the McKnight Foundation, so you can thank them if you find them useful. Um, you go to our website, mncompass.org. In the upper right, you'll see a menu item called Profiles. Hover over that and then choose MSP Neighborhoods. And from there, you can see predefined neighborhoods with the boundaries set by the city. But you can also do a custom neighborhood. So you can choose your own, um, the area around your school or a transit way. Or you can combine neighborhoods. You can draw um, 
I did one of my route coming here, which is on Twitter, so you can see how many people lived along the route, because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so you can find that data, and you could pinpoint a school and look at the area around it. Um, so some of the things that we notice looking kind of at the, oh, there's a map on that page where you can create um, different themes by, um, as you saw, a number of households with kids or poverty or people of color or um, population who are immigrants. And we see some interesting connections. For example, with race and poverty, there are some correlations. Um, they're not com completely, they're not everywhere. Um, we noticed that there are some distinctions between even the two cities, as we saw that there's more households with youth in St. Paul. Um, and there tends to be just a, a difference in the communities that we see even within that. So when you click in the profiles, you can see um, like poverty rates for kids. You can see income, rate, income levels for workers. So thinking of the parents of the kids. One thing that I find interesting in the employment data, um, we break it out by by race, and you can look at the population in a neighborhood and see the share of people who are white, share of people who are Asian, that category, black, um, and the share of adults who are working at a job is, it, it's different um, by race than the share of adults who live in the neighborhood, and often the white people have a higher rate of workforce participation. Um, and that's something that we see kind of, well, whenever I've looked it up, that's something that I see. Um, I can't say it's every neighborhood. Um, and you also just see, talking about disaggregation, like differences within these neighborhoods. So I live in Hanlon Midway, and I drew a line along a street to the north of, our, of my house and a street to the south, which was University Avenue. And the, um, the demographic difference there was quite, quite stark as well. So I think my, my case would be just go and, and look at the data. Um, and make sure that what you're thinking is actually what's there in that community, and then take a step to talk to the people who are in that community and find out what they think about it as well. Well, those of you who are, who are educators here would love to, to hear even just uh, comments, if you have them, on this the question of, uh, of demographics and particularly like the uh, poverty concentration. Is I feel like one of the things that happens um, one of the distressing things that happens in de debates about education um, is when it becomes polarized along the lines of union versus reform, what, what, whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it, that often um, the, and I will say this as a union person, that I will often hear my union brethren say that it's, that we focus too much on teacher, uh, uh, on teachers and blaming teachers and the real culprit is poverty. And, and the problem, and as I, as I say to, to people when I hear this argument, is what we hear in communities of color and uh, low-income communities when you say that is that until we solve poverty, we shouldn't expect our kids to learn. And that's not acceptable. Um, and then that kind of stops the conversation. Um, and I'd like to, us to think you know, sort of be beyond that, right? Because in the end, that's the, why, why we want to disaggregate the data is to figure out who's, who is, who are the, the people doing really, really well in those median, you know, that brings the median income of uh, Asian Americans high, but there are also people who are not doing very well. And, uh, and, and how are these, uh, the, these kids then doing in, in school? Um, can you thoughts on, on this at all? Well, I mean, I think that when I showed you the graduation rates, that's very alarming, right? I mean, until we graduate um, students from high school, they're not, they're, the cycle of poverty will continue 
to um, it will will continue. And I think that Compass did say that if uh, if you have a high school degree, you have higher rates of um, being successful in the workforce, right? So it's the quality of education that also determines whether a person is going to be successful in the workforce. So if you have a bad quality of education and you graduate from college, you're going to continue to be um, impoverished. So uh, for me, it's not really getting rid of poverty. It's really, uh, and I think our community has shown that education is the key to success. And so for someone like me, I graduated from college, and because I have a college degree, my options for um, work is much better than what my dad or my mom would have. So I think that we're living proof, and that's why the quality of data is so important, that um, if you have good quality education, then your, your chances of being successful is much greater. Yeah, that's, you know, my, my personal experience as well, um, is I come from a U.S. Um, a public school system without an achievement gap. That's the Department of Defense schools. Um, I, my dad was in was a career service uh, serviceman, and um, like like many people who join the, the the armed services, joined to escape poverty, and um, and the the Department of Defense school systems, you know, educate extremely diverse populations, extremely economically diverse populations, um, but are able for a variety of reasons that I think we don't, you know, turn to, to them enough to, to look. Um, it, is, it is, to me, the eternal frustration uh, in these debates is that, that we um, can't, uh, can't seem to get past this, like, poverty means we can't learn, which I think is absolutely absurd. Would you, can you come up to the mic? I just wanted to add that, you know, one of the, I mean, this is not pitting communities against each other, but we have so many Fortune 500 companies here, and they're not hiring from within our community anymore. It's because we don't have qualified workforce here in Minnesota. So, I mean, I think that we should take a look at that and understand what, uh, what is the root causes of all that stuff. You know, it's not just bringing, uh, in, you know, people from abroad, but it's really, it's because we don't have the workforce that's qualified to do those jobs. So how do we improve that? You know? I mean, that's what they tell me. I don't know them. Yep. I don't have the data. Please. Right. Can you hear me? Sorry, I'm nervous yeah. with the microphone. Thank you both so much for talking. I actually am coming out of higher education, just leaving a tenure track job and coming back to Minnesota. A little closer. Okay, so I just moved back to Minnesota from rural Georgia, but my kids are back in the Minneapolis public schools. But one of the things too that you're talking about reminds me of people talk about like Title IX or Title I schools, right, and how bad they are, which essentially is just a measure of poverty, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the schools, it's just how many kids are in poverty with that, yes, right? Yes. But like my husband, I have a PhD and an MSW, and my husband has a master's, but we move back with no jobs, right? So we're technically in poverty, right? Yes. And I think that's part of this conversation too, is that we put down title, you know, different schools of different things, so we get that too. And so, but the thing is, what I also want to say comparatively, like I think the problem with Minnesota is we have great rates for like white students, what you guys are talking about. But when we desegregate the data, which I'm so happy you talked about, because as a sociologist, that means a huge difference to yes. that with policy. Yes. But how do we translate this to the people who it matters to, right? Because we're sitting here as an audience, as educators, right? Yes. People who care. Yes. But what does this matter to 
the guy across the street, right? How do we do this? That's kind of my question too. And also, how do we destigmatize what different like schools are when it's low income? It doesn't mean it's a bad school. It's a poverty rate, right? That doesn't mean kids are stupid. Like I hate that. Sorry, that's yeah. like my big thing with it. So thank you. Um, yeah, wow, you brought up so many good points. Um, and welcome to Minnesota. <laughs> okay, welcome back. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the points that you brought up is something that um, we could kind of see in the data, the fact that um, it does matter to our future to address kind of the struggles that students might be having um, because our future is increasingly made up of students of color and students from these groups who will be joining the workforce and who are our future and if the graduation rates and the um, kind of testing levels are lower, that has an implication for our future. Um, and absolutely, like poverty doesn't mean people are bad at learning. Um, but what does it, so how do we cope with that as educators and as an educational system? And considering what you heard Javier at your meeting that people didn't think that that meant there was a different strategy needed. If we don't address things, um, we'll see exactly what the data are kind of um, almost showing right now as we go into the future. So it, it won't be a surprise, but it also, it means that we have opportunities to, to keep Minnesota strong and make Minnesota stronger and work better for all of us. One of, one of the things that, um I would love to see Minnesota Compass help with. Have any of you ever used Zillow or a similar type of real estate app or anything like that? So I uh, did that when we were, we were, uh, my partner and I were thinking of moving to Minneapolis. And I was really shocked just at the kind of the the use of data on the on their website. You know, you you look at a house and then it tells you nearby schools. I don't have children, but I was just curious. I'm like, oh, and, you're, and it and it gives you test scores and racial breakdown, and that's it. And it and it it felt like a tool for like how to segregate yourself. That's what, like, it just felt like this, this is, you know, oh no, you don't wanna be in that neighborhood or, you know, and um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's really appalling and it made me think that we need a community data uh, set of, you know, data set for like real estate um, for people who are looking to see, like, you know, schools with, you know, different ways of, of assessing schools, number of, you know, of, of programs or wh whatever, whatever it is, um, because the, it seemed to me that the, that the values that the, that they, what they were transmitting is that these are the things that you should use to assess whether a neighborhood is good or not. Um, and it seems like there's so much more information we could put into that um, that could hopefully lead to our cities being far less segregated, which is a, another huge problem when it comes to, to education. So uh, that's my dream project that I'm going to give to you, Rachel, is <laughs> an alternative to Zillow's <laughs> uh, community data. Any uh, other questions? Do you have a question? Yes, please. Hi, um, my name is Yuma, and uh, first of all, thank you um, both of you for such a great conversation. Um, so I'm uh, from Japan, so um, I moved here 
to go to college, so I don't identify myself as an um, Asian American. I'm Japanese, I'm Asian, and I have a little bit different experience than um, many of my peers who are Asian Americans. Um, but being here for almost five years, I, you know, experienced and internalized a lot of uh, stereotypes. Like you talked about um, Asian Americans being a model minority. And I was never good at math back home, <laughs> but everyone yes. told me I'm good at math. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but I was also told that, hey, you know, you're not like Jap typical Japanese girl because you're outspoken, you know, you're not quiet. And then I'm like, what does this mean? And I was confused, um, but now I have better understanding. But I, I see myself now that I internalize a lot of stereotypes as well. Um, so my question is, um, to me, to understand data, um, I strongly see the importance of uh, incorporating intersectionality. So. Um, uh, for example, looking at education achievement gap, you have to, um, I think it's important to understand your race and your socioeconomic status and uh, where you grew up, your family unit, I guess, um, style or whatever, to understand like the uh, more complex issue. Um, and then I also, um, many of my Asian American friends, um, they, what did I um, they express the struggles of um, embracing their uh, sexual identity because I have my friends who are Asian Americans and they're uh, they gay, they're lesbians, or they're transgenders. And they said that they had uh, much more difficult times navigating themselves into education or into their family. Um, and then my question is like, uh, do you see in the future um, you know, breaking down the data more um, and then incorporating like uh, sexual identity so that you can understand, you know, uh, complexity of uh, um, youth of color go through, I guess, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll leave the data to um, Ruth, but I, I wanted to just quickly say something about that and also talk about curriculum uh, because the other woman who came back to Minnesota who's sitting at the bar, <laughs> um, you said, how do we uh, um, change the behavior in the mind of the person across the street, right? So I, I just want to say, um, and this is linked to what you're talking about. Ruth just told us how diverse our community is and the change in demographics. But our curriculum is not reflected in that, right? How often do we talk about the different genders in our classrooms, right? Uh, without getting, you know, Board of Education all up in arms or, or other parents. How, how do we talk about me in the classroom instead of you coming to ed, ed talks, right? So that, so that my child who's eight years old already knows what, what her friend Mushtaq you know, her culture is about why she wears her headdress and so forth from a very young age. Because if we don't do that, we're never gonna accept. And it doesn't, it's not overnight, right? It's really working together. And so um, I lived here 20 years ago and when I walk around Minnesota, it does not look like the Minnesota that I remember. I used to go to the Mall of America and I was the shortest and darkest person. When I go to the America, I'm not that anymore, right? So I see the changes socially and environmentally, but when you go to the classroom, 
our curriculum is still not reflective of that social change or the, the demographic change. So I think we need to do that, including the sexual orientation piece, right? Um, and then um, for the data disaggregation, I want to say to the Board of Education, the pushback that we got, we had to change some. It was during the time when they, they were advocating for gender neutral bathrooms, and we had a tiny word, you must collect data on gender. Um, and the legislator who wanted to author that in the House made us change that word, right? So, so there's still a lot of issues in our community about sexual orientation that I, I'm also very new to. Uh, but we have to kind of, you know, uh, understand and eventually, you know, step by step, we'll make some changes, right? So, data. <laughs> data. Uh, I think this is another case speaking to the of how people can identify in terms of gender and orientation. It's another case of the data sources reflecting our societal understanding and perhaps the fact that that wasn't something that people were able to be as open about or recognized about each other. Um, something has shifted and we might see data sources catching up with that. If you look on the Compass website, you won't see any of our data broken out by orientation. And the genders that we show are male and female, and that's because that's what the data sources provide right now. So it would have to come from um, either from individual research projects um, opting to look into how you can ask that question in a respectful way to get accurate data. And that's something that um, we're working on at Wilder Research. Compass is based at Wilder Research in St. Paul. And so we've been working on how to do that with our own surveys. At the level of the census, it might take some, um, if that were a goal that a group wanted to achieve, it might take some organizing and um, some conversations at that level. So I uh, need to wrap up here. So two things. One, uh, first, just want to make sure that you all fill out the survey. Um, and it's very important to uh, Ed Talks um, for our funding and for and just to know who was who here and such. So if you could uh, please fill that out. And I just wanted to, to close thinking about something, actually, what, um, how you open Kaying. Um, and for the educators in the room, when I was, when I was in kindergarten in Germany, my kindergarten teacher called in my mother for a parent-teacher conference to inform her that her son was willful, disobedient, and did not know how to pronounce his own name. Um, and my mom was alarmed and said, what is he calling himself? And she said, he's saying Javier. And I, I call him, I say, Javier, listen to me, Javier, and he just ignores me. Now, my mother and I, we laughed all the way home. And um, I... I, that moment is very formative for me. I feel like I, I always say I learned a very important lesson that day. Adults are stupid. Um, but I, I, I joke, but um, often I think for our kids of color, we come at um, a perspective from a perspective of deficit when talking to kids of color, color or about them. And my mother, from that moment and forward, always taught us that, um, you know, you know two languages. You know more than your teacher, which was always what I, you know, when I got in trouble with that teacher later, I just look at her and I was thinking like, yeah, well, we already established that you are dumb. Um, 
But, but to, to seek to think of these things as strengths and these children that are the you know, ever-increasing populations in our schools as people who bring so much to the table because in a situation, you know, we hear a lot these days about microaggressions and things and I, what, what, in the conversations I have with younger people, what I encourage people to say is like, if we spend our day cataloging all the things that people have said about us or thought about us, you rerun the risk of becoming that, of becoming others' perceptions. And what we can instead do in that moment of, of pain, of whatever, is to realize that in that interaction that you're experiencing, you're seeing both that person's reality and yours. You know more in that instance. And that is something good for that child, and I think ultimately for this state. Because the less children grow up thinking of themselves as coming from a perspective of deficit and the larger society thinking that way, I think the better we all uh, will be. So, I thank you, Ruth, thank you, Kaying. Um, wonderful presentations. Um, uh, stay tuned for more, uh, more Ed Talks and please, please fill out those, uh, those surveys before you take off. Thank you. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Young Education Professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos, please visit achievempls.org slash edtalksmn.